Um, let's go ahead and jump into the text together. Acts chapter 12, I'll be reading verses 19 through 25 over us. 19 through 25. And after Herod searched for him, that's Peter, and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended upon the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. So a question for you, Foothill. What is the most glorious thing you've ever done? What is the most powerful thing you've ever done? What is the most awe-inspiring thing you have ever done in your life? Like, think about that. Like, what, what memories come to mind? So when I asked myself that question, um, here's a little peek into how unimpressive I am. Uh, what came to mind for me is when I was 17, I was invited to play on this under-18 USA baseball team that would go kind of com compete in this world championship over in Italy. And so all the great countries were there, China and Germany and Japan and Mexico, Canada. It was, a, it was like I said, a two-week-long tournament where we, we had an opportunity to win the 18 and under world championship for baseball. And so our, our roster was completely stacked. I was one of the three starting pitchers we had in our rotation. So in baseball, um, you don't just go out and pitch week after week after, or day after day after day. What you need to do between starts is rest your arms, stretch, ice, the whole nine yards. Well, it just so happened that my start in the rotation was on the semifinal game. So we kind of had cruised through the tournament to that point, and, and I was amping myself up before the game, knowing that like all that stood between us and a chance to win was, was me on the mound. And I went out and I crushed it. Like, Seven innings, one hit, no runs. Like in baseball terms, that's really good. Um, I had a phenomenal game. And, and when, when I got pulled off the mound, eventually in the eighth inning, I was walking off the field and, and the crowd was cheering me on. The coaches were patting me on my back and, and my teammates were pumping me up and I loved it. Like it was intoxicating. I was receiving from them praise and honor and worship and adoration. Like I was glorying in that moment. Now, now I don't share that story with you to, to be arrogant because there's almost nothing impressive about a 17-year-old throwing a baseball. I share that story with you because in that moment, I was that arrogant. I did believe it was all about me. I did believe that we won that game solely on the back of my performance as I was walking off the field and I was taking credit from my teammates, what I wasn't doing was deflecting the praise and the adoration and saying, no, 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 my, my catcher, he called a really good game. My manager called a good game. The defense behind me, they made some really, really good plays. The offense, they got some runs on the boards that we had a chance to win and move on. But what I, I, I chose not to redirect the praise. What I did was stood in the limelight and basked in it. I stole what I did not deserve. I took what was not mine, which was credit for that victory. And in the text I just read over us, uh, we, we see what happens when you take from God what is not yours. We have a warning passage here for us around this idea of what does it look like to steal glory from God. 
And the main point I want you to walk away with this morning, like remember this if you remember anything. If we side with God, we win. If we oppose God, we lose. If we side with God, we win. If we oppose God, we lose. We're gonna look at this text in three different movements. We're gonna spend a good chunk of our time looking at what opposition to God looks like. And then we're gonna look at what loyalty to God looks like. And then we're gonna look at the choice we have this morning. So let's begin with opposing God. This text serves us most prominently as a warning passage. If you go through the scriptures, you're gonna encounter quite a few warning passages and the intent of those passages are meant to kind of dust up our lives a little bit, to jolt us up, to cause a little bit of sobriety in our thinking and how we evaluate our lives. And, and so this text is gonna serve us in that way. I mean, think about the scene that Luke is taking us through. JD last week walked through the first 19 verses of, of Acts 12 and he did a wonderful job. Uh, if you have a moment this week, go back and listen listen to that, like don't download it and put some earbuds in and do it now, but wait till later this week um, and listen to the first 19 verses. But let me just kind of retell the story so we can pick up in the narrative where we find ourselves. What's going on is, is, is the Herodian dynasty, hopefully you remember kind of that family tree that um, JD put up for us. The Herodian dynasty was one of the most powerful families in the ancient times. They ruled on behalf of Rome over vast amounts of territory. We'll put a map up that shows kind of the territory they ruled over. And, and what happens is Jesus comes in and, and something altogether different happens. Jesus comes in and he's right in the middle of enemy territory right there and he starts a new movement and it's called the church. And his spirit, as he ascends to heaven, his spirit descends upon the church and the church begins to expand like wildfire as the gospel goes forth to every location on that map. And in the process, what's, what's happening is there's followers of Herod that are beginning to turn their back on Herod and begin to pledge allegiance to King Jesus. They're beginning to walk away from Herod's corrupt kingdom and pledge allegiance to Jesus's pure kingdom. And in the process, Herod is losing not only followers, but the influence and the power and the fame that come with those followers. And he hates it. He's just like his granddad and his uncle. His granddad, and at the beginning of the Gospels, is the one that tries to wipe out Jesus and all the firstborn sons. His uncle was the one who, in Matthew 14, beheads John the Baptist. And he here in Acts chapter 12 is the one who kills James and imprisons Peter. They're losing their power and their authority and their prestige. And what they're doing is trying to go straight to the top to wipe out this movement called the church. And so he goes after Peter and James. At this point in, the church, in church history, they're kind of the face and the voice of this movement. And, and so James dies and, and Peter is in prison, but that's where God flexes his power and miraculously delivers Peter from certain death as well. So Herod's perplexed at what's going on because he can't locate Peter. And, and in his fury, he decides to put to death the guards who let Peter escape. And that is where we find ourselves in verse 20. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended upon the king's country for food. So Herod's fuming, and he begins to redirect his anger to the people of Tyre and of Sidon. 
And, and, and the text notes for us that Tyre and Sidon relied upon the king for food, for sustenance, for livelihood. And, and so naturally, they're, they're timid, they're scared. And so they go to Blastus, the, the king's chamberlain. When you hear chamberlain, kind of think chief of staff, the, the one who managed the king's daily affairs. They, they run to this guy, Blastus, and they plead for peace because they know that their livelihood depends upon Herod's kindness to them. And so Herod sees an opportunity to regain some power, regain some momentum, regain some authority by manipulating that power over the people of Tyre and Sidon. And we read in verse 21 what Herod's response is. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. Now, these aren't just historical facts that Luke is writing down for us to remember what happened in history, but what Luke is trying to do is paint a picture in our minds of what's going on under the surface. Like, note the words that he uses. He says, Herod puts on royal robes. There's only one person worthy of wearing royal robes, and that's King Jesus. He sits upon a throne there is only one eternal, lasting throne, and that throne is always and forevermore occupied by King Jesus. He delivers a king's speech to the people of Tyre and Sidon, knowing that their life or death depended upon his words to them. But friends, there's only one king whose words matter for life or for death, and that's Jesus alone. What's going on in this text under the surface is that Luke is noting for us that what Herod is doing is clearly an affront to King Jesus. He is insulting the king of the universe with his actions. He is attempting to steal something that does not belong to him, which is glory as king. And then we read these devastating words in verse 22. The people of Tyre and Sidon shout out the voice of a God and not of a man. The voice of a God and not of a man. Like, do you feel how devastating that is? They are enthroning Herod and dethroning God. They are deifying Herod and insulting the living God of the universe. This is devastating. And as devastating as those words are, jumping down to verse 23, we see that Herod did not redirect their praise and their glory, but rather what he did is he sat in silence and received it as if he deserved it. He sat in silence as they worshiped him. His affront to God appears to be working. And yet, that is where in this passage we have a very clear warning what happens as a result of Herod's opposition to God and stealing glory from God? God strikes him down. Opposition to God always results in a guilty verdict. Opposing God always results in judgment. Now let me bring this story down into the room for us and personalize it a little bit because I'm willing to bet none of us are kings and none of us have put on royal robes and sat on the throne before. But what I want to submit to you is, is it was Herod's sinful heart that led to Herod's sinful actions. And connected to his sinful actions is his sinful heart of pride. And we all share in that same sinful heart in our pride, our sin of pride that we all share in. 
I really believe there's two kind of categories in our day and age that we find ourselves where we will sinfully and pridefully oppose God. The, the first category will be kind of this, this passive indifference to the things of God. And then this other one is this idea of stolen valor from God. So this first one, this passive indifference to God, like the mantra of this individual is like, well, who cares? None of this matters. No, none, none of this, this God stuff matters. Like I think back to the time I took calculus in high school. I was completely indifferent to calculus. I showed up the first day, heard about five minutes and thought, man, this is a gigantic waste of my time. Turns out I was right. Um, <laughs> math teacher's in the room. Sorry, not sorry. Um, I thought calculus was terrible. Um, and so what I did was I took on kind of this passively indifferent posture towards calculus. So I got the book, and what did I do? I put it aside, and it began to collect dust. When the teacher began to lecture, I began to doodle. When it was time to study with my classmates, I wasn't studying. Somehow I passed that class. I won't tell you how, but I did. Um, and, and yet, while it's silly and funny and whatever else, um, Far too many of us take on this kind of passively indifferent posture towards God. And this is sinful and prideful opposition to him. I don't know how that works out in Foothill Church. I don't know you all that well yet, but if you're like any other church I've ever been a part of, which I'm sure you are because we're all human, I'm gonna guess it, it kind of fleshes itself out in, in a few different ways here. Like maybe it fleshes itself out like this. Like a minister will stand up on stage giving announcements saying, hey, our kids need you. Our youth needs you. We need servants in this church who want to go reach the largest unreached people group in our midst every week. And yet you just passively and idly sit by, waiting for someone else to fill that role when you know God is pricking you, asking you to fill that role. Because you think, well, what does it really matter? Or maybe it's knowing that God has called you to be baptized, to publicly profess your faith in King Jesus and you just sit back and say, well, none of this really matters, as if obedience to Jesus doesn't matter. Or maybe it's knowing that God has called you to grow deeper in your faith and knowing that maybe steps or growth groups or hopping in a class is the avenue through which he wants you to do that, but, but you just kind of sit back and say, well, I don't have the time, and, and maybe it won't really be that effective, and I don't know who else is in that class and who's teaching. I don't really like that person or the rest of that group or that group leader, and you just sit back and you wait for growth to come, but it never does because we, we stagnate in our indifference. Whatever it is for you, this posture of indifference is very dangerous and it, because it's sneaky and we just kind of drift into it and ultimately what we drift into is God's judgment. But on the other hand, there's this idea of stolen valor from God. Like we have this kind of pent up hostility against him and we shake our fists saying God is wrong, God is a liar, God is evil. I don't need him because I'm sufficient in of myself to accomplish the life I want to live. This is Herod in Acts chapter 12, and this is me and my, my baseball story, stealing what was not mine. And again, I don't know how that works out here in Foothill Church, but, but I'm willing to guess, maybe it looks like this, like we look at the treasures in our lives, the, the finances and the resources we have, and we say this, I earned it, I deserve it. It's all mine. And we take credit for earning these things as if God didn't graciously gift us all things we have. 
Or maybe it's looking at, at, at your time, your schedule, and kind of zealously guarding it as if your time isn't meant to be used to build God's kingdom and to spread his glory and fame. And yet we guard it like hawks saying, this is my time for my use to do what I want to do. This is not God's time. Or maybe it's looking at your talents the way God has gifted you and stewarding those things for building your own kingdom and your own glory versus building up the church. It's getting your gifts that God is graciously giving you and going out and building a company or climbing a corporate ladder and then taking credit for those things as if God has not put his hand upon you and enabled you to do that. And again, in that, we pridefully oppose him and it results in our certain judgment. In either case, whatever it may be, small or big for you, passive indifference, stolen valor, what you are doing, what we are doing, what I am doing is pridefully exalting myself above Jesus and stealing from him what is his alone, which is glory, honor, praise, and complete control over my life. And so let us together today take inventory of our hearts and our minds and our lives, our actions, and see, where am I like Herod? Where am I pridefully opposing God? Where am I stealing from God what is due him alone? And let us receive this warning passage with sobriety. Herod had another choice. Herod had the opportunity to repent and to bow before God, but he refused to do that. And my prayer is that no one in this room today will refuse the opportunity to bow before God. So let's look at Herod's other choice. Herod's other choice was to choose loyalty to God, not opposition. He had the opportunity to choose to be loyal to God to, and not to oppose him. Here's the thing, though. Loyalty takes great humility. If opposition is prideful and pride is our natural disposition as fallen humans, pride is really, really easy and humility is extremely hard. But loyalty to God requires humility of us. I want to share with you quickly just three different scriptural examples of what this humility might look like. Just a few weeks ago, we, we looked at Acts chapter 10 together. Pastor Stephen walked us through the account where Peter is called to go preach the gospel to Cornelius and his home. And, and Cornelius knows that Peter is coming and he's on his way and, and he's waiting for him. And when he sees Peter coming from the distance, he runs out to Peter and bows down before him and begins to kiss him and, and credit him as if he is God. And, and Peter says to Cornelius, stand up, I too am just a man. Do you sense the humility in that response? We see this in the Gospel of John. Before Jesus' earthly ministry began, John the Baptist is beginning to gain some followers and, and the leaders of the Jewish community come to him and they say, are you the Messiah? At the very least, are you the prophet of Elijah? And John the Baptist says, no, 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 no. I am not the Christ. I am just preparing the way for the Christ. Do you sense the humility in that? 
And later on in our our Acts study, we're going to come across chapter 14 when Paul and Barnabas will go to a city called Lystra and they're going to perform some miracles and people are going to get healed. And and the people of Lystra are going to say to Paul and Barnabas, you're Zeus and you're Hermes. You are these Greek gods that are all powerful. And Paul is going to rebuke them sharply and say, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature to you. And we bring good news that you should turn from these vain things to the living God. Don't you see the humility there? All of these men, Paul, Barnabas, John the Baptist, Peter, what they are doing is saying, I am not God. They, knew, they know who they are and who they are not. They know who God is and who God is not. In other words, what they are doing is taking the floodlight that these people began to shine upon them of, of praise and adoration, and they take that floodlight and they redirect it to the risen Christ and say, worship him, not me. Adore him, not me. Don't look to me. I am not God. I am not Christ. And that is humility. And that's what loyalty to Jesus looks like. I mean, we saw it last week as JD walked us through the first 19 verses. We saw what loyalty, humble loyalty to God brings. Peter is sitting in prison. He just watched his best friend get beheaded and he's walking in shackles knowing that in just a short time his own death is coming. And I'm willing to bet Herod gave him the opportunity to recant his faith in Jesus and pledge allegiance to Herod. But Peter humbly refused to do so. He sat in a cell and the text tells us he slept in his cell, humbly waiting upon God, whatever may befall him humbly staying loyal to God when given the opportunity to pledge allegiance to Herod. And what happens? God delivers him. Like, doesn't that cause hope in you? Like, doesn't that cause hope to well up in your life? Like, we remember the Proverbs that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Pride always comes before destruction, but humility always comes before salvation. And we see this all across the scriptures. God hearing the cries of his followers, God protecting his followers, God providing for his followers, God sustaining his followers, God drawing near his followers, God comforting his followers. We see this all over the scripture. And again, doesn't that cause hope in you? Humility always ends in hope. It always ends in hope. Listen, you can pridefully choose to oppose God today. I plead with you not to, but but that's your choice. But there's a better way, and there's a way of humility. Think about how Philippians 2 describes the gospel itself in terms of humility. God's word says, have this mind among yourself, yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father, the work of Christ on the cross is the work of utter humiliation. Think about the gospel itself. Jesus humbles himself. The second person of the Trinity comes into humanity, takes on flesh, and then becomes our own sin and bears our punishment, hangs on our cross, lays in our grave. And in in exchange, he gives us his life and his righteousness and his innocence. 
But it probably didn't look like that in that day and age as Jesus hung from a cross. It probably looked like he was losing. And yet the text tells us, therefore, he is exalted. His humility ultimately resulted in his exaltation. And the scriptures tell us that those of us who have died with Christ, we are risen with Christ through faith in him. And now we are seated with him in the heavenlies. So it may appear to you like you are losing in your life right now as you humble yourself. You might be suffering. You might be carrying burdens that you don't feel like you can carry. You might be facing some opposition in your life. And it might look like you are losing. But take heart, believer, All that is coming for you in the gospel of Jesus Christ is life and joy and peace and hope and happiness. That is all that is coming for you. You too will be exalted with the risen Jesus Christ. So stay humble. Stay loyal. Choose not to oppose God. And we see it at the end of this text. Verse 24 tells us the word of God increased and multiplied. Remember that map I put up? It probably looked like Herod's kingdom would exist forevermore. Well, guess what? You can walk through the ruins of Herod's kingdom right now. Herod's kingdom was destroyed, but God's kingdom is moving on in perfection. God's kingdom is continuing to advance. God's church is continuing to multiply. His numbers are continuing to increase. Every day, right now, as we are meeting, that is happening in our midst and across the world because all that there is for the church of God is hope. So let me lay before us today, which is utter clarity, the choice we all have to, to make. This this passage is meant to confront us with a choice. We have a choice between opposing God or siding with God. We have a choice between judgment or mercy. We have a choice between eternal death and separation or eternal life with God. And that choice depends entirely upon the posture of your heart. Is your heart going to take on a posture of pride or of humility? Remember our main point which I got from John Piper as he commented on this passage. If we side with God, we win. If we oppose God, we lose. Are you going to be like Herod or are you gonna be like Peter? This is the choice you can make today. So let me address two different camps that are in the room among us right now. For for the unbelievers in the room, please, please hear me. Like, do not oppose God. This does not end well for you. I promise you that. Please humble yourself before God. Bow your knee before him and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You will make that confession one day. I pray that day is now. Please pray and cry out to God that you have sinned against him, that you have pridefully opposed him, that you have become a lot like Herod in your own life. And then hear this truth, unbeliever. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. This is the truth of the gospel. If you pray a simple prayer of repentance, God, I turn from my sin and I turn to you as my only hope. He will forgive you and you will be transferred from Herod's kingdom to Jesus' kingdom. For the believers in the room, hear me. We, we all too often stray back to our old selves. This is Paul in Romans 7. I hate the things that I do. I, hate the, or I do the very things that I, I hate to do. I do the things that the old man did. 
we all too often look back to the old man and begin confessing with our mouth that Jesus is our King and our Lord, but with our lives, we're living something altogether different. But, but again, the truth is that the Christian life is, is not a life of one-time repentance, but the Christian life is a life of ongoing repentance. So we have the opportunity today to, to inventory and say, God, where have I drifted off course? Where have I begun to pridefully oppose you? Where have I begun to drift away from you? And we can repent and we can receive mercy and hope and grace from Jesus Christ, and we can walk in the righteousness that he has purchased for us. Now, I know texts like this can hit us like a ton of bricks, like warning passages, and they're meant to do that. That's, that's not bad. I don't want to soften the blow of that. Sometimes it's good for us to be jolted a little bit. But I want for you to think about the cross of Jesus Christ for a minute. In the cross of Jesus Christ, God's perfect judgment and God's perfect mercy met. God justly punished sin, but God mercifully did not punish us. He punished his only son, Jesus Christ. And so as we hear a warning passage, our only hope is to look at that cross of Jesus Christ, to fix our gaze upon that cross, to cling to that cross, to lay bare before that cross at the bottom of it, and to receive the mercy that comes, knowing that Jesus, or that God the Father does not punish you for your prideful opposition. He, for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, we have no punishment from God. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God stores up no wrath, no punishment for those of us who are united to Jesus Christ in faith. All that he has for us is mercy. That is it kindness, mercy, love, life. But what that requires for us is us hugging that cross and refusing to let go. Church, Foothill, please, please cling to that cross. That is our only hope in life and in death. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we thank you that in your divine will, you did not uh, need to save us, but you could have perfectly and justly punished us for our sin and our rebellion against you. And yet your plan was to send your son on a redemptive rescue mission. And we thank you for that. We thank you that you would send your son, that he might become our sin so that we can become his righteousness. And so for those of us who are far off, would you bring us near and would you save? For those of us who are yours but are straying away, would you bring us back in near? And would we look to the cross of Jesus Christ, cling to it and receive the mercy that comes from it? We love you, God. And we pray these things in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen.